You're listening to a very good audio blog by me, Keenan. Each episode is a companion to a piece you can read on my actual blog, gkeenan.co slash avgb, a very good blog, avgb, where I often include links and footnotes that I don't read aloud in the audio version. If you're listening to this on a podcast app, you can find a link to this episode's corresponding blog post in the show notes. This episode is a reading of a piece entitled, I Learned to Love Cooking, and All I Had to Do Was Destroy My Entire Life. It was originally published on December 21st, 2023. As a quick disclaimer, this piece contains brief descriptions of child abuse, and this audio version also contains some brief but unpleasant mouth noises. Sorry! One of my clearest childhood memories is the bacon my dad made. Despite my aphantasia affliction, I can clearly see it, curled and brown and crispy, but not too crispy, nestled in a pile on a plate, underneath layers of paper towel yellowed and wilted by grease. No matter how many times he made bacon, it looked, tasted, and felt the same. Now, please don't mistake this for the misguided yearnings of yesteryear. As a person perpetually wary of nostalgia, I don't trust my brain to handle memories with anything resembling objectivity. You won't find me waxing poetic on the simplistic beauty of my adolescence. But Dad's bacon was perfect, and I simply don't care if it wasn't. My dad was the person who cooked in our home. Didn't really matter the meal, the kitchen was his domain. Sunny-side-up eggs, pancakes, and that wonderful, perfect bacon for breakfast, ham sandwiches and salad for lunch, spaghetti, and a side of garlic bread for dinner. It wasn't the most complex fare in the world. We were white Midwestern suburbanites in the 90s, after all. But my dad loved food, loved experimenting and perfecting, loved elevating meals beyond the basics. Making a burger for him wasn't just slapping some ground beef together on a skillet. It was diced onion and garlic powder and Worcestershire sauce mixed in with the patty. It was a slice of nice cheddar on top. It was a toasted brioche bun. Again, not groundbreaking stuff, but there was thought and effort in his cooking that was absent elsewhere during my upbringing. For him, the act of making food wasn't merely a pursuit of sustenance, but something to enjoy in its entirety. He loved cooking, and that was apparent to anyone who ate what he made. There were dishes of his that transcended the confines of our household, becoming staples of every cookout, every holiday. Sometimes it seemed like gatherings happened as an excuse for my dad to make someone's favorite something. These recipes ascended into familial mythology. Legends were passed from generation to generation about his pasta salad. His corned beef and cabbage was the subject of sonnets. And if there was anything that could come close to proving the existence of a deity, it was his mashed potatoes. Dad's food was the topic of conversation. Dad's food was something everyone looked forward to. This was pivotal for me. Seeing my dad cook and being recognized for his aptitude made the act of cooking itself something aspirational. The way I saw it, if you could cook, you were impressive, you were important, you were adult. As a child, I often felt invisible. There was nothing more important to me than to be taken seriously, to be seen as mature. While I struggle to grasp any concrete memory from my childhood, I do know that one of my defining characteristics was a desperation to be older, to be perceived as something more than just a kid, to be a full person, 
I wanted people to notice me. I wanted to be seen. I think the most memorable thing about my dad's cooking was his eagerness to share it. The way his eyes lit up when he tweaked a recipe or ventured out to try something new. I can still feel the palpable joy radiating off of him when he finished making something he was excited about. Here's an example that feels inexplicably significant. I mentioned above that he would make spaghetti. Most of my childhood pasta experiences facilitated by not my dad were either noodles topped with butter and some craft-grated parmesan on top, or noodles drenched in ragu and some craft-grated parmesan on top. But dad wanted more. Dad wanted to make pasta sauce exciting. This meant that instead of just reheating store-bought pasta sauce on the stove, he would first brown Italian sausage in a pot and then dump in the store-bought pasta sauce. But rather than blindly trust the ragu company to season it properly, he took it upon himself to layer in complexity by adding a variety of spices and herbs. Some dried oregano, a pinch of crushed red pepper flakes, I'm pretty sure there were some bay leaves. It felt like bay leaves were the cornerstone of my dad's cooking, even though I couldn't tell you what the fuck a bay leaf ever added to anything. Regardless, the point is that my dad saw a jar of pasta sauce and rightly thought, this could be better. I can still remember him ushering me over to try it from the pot. I can still hear him asking, What do you think? Do you like it? It's a really good impression of my dad. Back then, I didn't realize how deeply insecure and anxious my dad was. I had no idea that his propensity for explosive anger was a byproduct of his emotions seeking any outlet from underneath the strata of bullying and manipulation and neglect that solidified during his own upbringing. It is easier to see now that I'm in my late 30s, though admittedly I still find it difficult to look past the incalculable amount of time I spent trying to hide from him when he came home from work, arguing with someone who only existed in his head, a bubbling grumble murmuring deep within him until eventually, inevitably, he whipped himself up into a frenzy that burst out in violence at the wall or the steering wheel of his car. Or just that one time when he wrenched me into the air by my wrist and hauled me upstairs to my room, my feet kicking in circles trying to find the ground until he set me down and slammed the door behind him. I don't remember how old I was. Young and small enough to lift by the wrist, obviously. Old enough to have that seared into my brain for the rest of my life. Old enough to have the abstract, instinctual fear of my father's simmering rage validated. That moment emulsified hypothetical pain into fact. Dad's anger wasn't just scary. Dad's anger could hurt me. I wonder if my dad ever thinks about that, if he even remembers it, if he feels shame. I've never brought it up to him. For as much of my own anger, I feel all of these years later, I feel an almost equal amount of sadness that the demons haunting him go unaddressed. But that's not for me to uncover. I've got my own therapy to worry about. What do you think? Do you like it? Yeah, it's good, I said. It was nice to see him happy, for however long it lasted. Mom didn't cook much. 
Sometimes she'd bake cookies. Sometimes she'd make nachos, and by nachos I mean Tostitos chips piled on a plate, pre-shredded taco cheese scattered on top, microwaved, until melted and bubbly. White Midwestern suburbanites. Sometimes she'd make what she called cheese ho-hos, which were white flour tortillas with pre-shredded cheese scattered in the middle, rolled up and, you guessed it, microwaved until melted and bubbly. Mom's cooking was functional, the byproduct of both a self-deprecating insistence that she was terrible at it, combined with an immensely picky daughter, my younger sibling, who, for the most part, would settle only for carbs and cheese. Mom's food satisfied cravings. Mom's food got the job done. In addition to the aforementioned nachos and cheese ho-hos, Mom made box mac and cheese, or Campbell's hearty ham and bean soup, or styrofoam cups of ramen. But there was one other dish, one that followed her from her own childhood that her family, the Nelsons, affectionately referred to as slumguck. Yeah, I'll repeat it. Slumguck. S-L-U-M-G-U-C-K. All one word. Slumguck. I'm almost embarrassed to write it. In large part because I cannot for the life of me think of a word that conjures up a more vile image in relation to something that is ostensibly edible. But in doing so, there is a modicum of hope that I can offload at least a portion of the psychological horror I've lived with for decades. Perhaps disseminating it to the masses will dilute its potency. Slum guck. Seeing it provokes a visceral response deep within me. Like nausea, but the kind where you want to die. Slum guck. To this day, I remain blissfully ignorant of its etymological history. A cursory search reveals zero results, so there's a sick part of me that can even appreciate that this may be a Nelson family original. The more I think about this word, though, the more I hope that its existence is the result of synaptic misfire. Perhaps during my formative years, my brain folded in such a way that garbled the original name into the bizarre and heinous concoction that I'm in possession of now. I've never interrogated my mother about it, and honestly, I'm worried that she'd confirm my recollection is accurate. For the masochists among us who are curious about what slumguck even is, here's the recipe. One ground beef, one cream of mushroom soup, one pasta, typically flat noodles. Cook the ground beef. Boil and drain the pasta, dump it in with the beef, dump in the soup, stir to combine, over low heat. That's it. Salt? No thank you. Pepper? Fuck right off. Not in our house. This is white people food. Now, perhaps you're thinking, Keenan, that sounds a lot like a boring-ass, bland, and basic beef stroganoff recipe. Why, yes, you're correct. But for us, it was slumguck. And for my mother, who was already juggling so much, it was a hearty, simple meal nearly effortless to assemble, damn near impossible to screw up. Almost. When I was old enough to be trusted to commandeer the stove, my mom began delegating cooking tasks to me. It started with the box mac and cheese and the Campbell's hearty ham and bean soup. It wasn't long before I graduated to grilled cheese duty because my mom told me she liked my grilled cheese more than my dad's. That validation was all that was needed to stoke the fires of excitement for the beginning of my culinary journey. As a child raised in a family whose one shared personality trait was emotional volatility, a child who got grounded when they brought home a report card with anything lower than a B on it, I was desperate for the approval of authority. 
As a result, my early tenure as a chef was defined by a close adherence to instruction. Scrutinize the directions on the box. Follow them to a T. If an ingredient didn't exist in the recipe, it didn't exist in the final dish. There were right answers, there were wrong answers, and there was punishment for the wrong answers. In hindsight, I understand that the reality wasn't so dictatorial, but my perception at the time was that there was one way to cook. Follow the recipe. Perception is often stronger than reality. Being the smart and capable and self-sufficient kid that I was told to be, I quickly mastered the art of boiling water and dumping ingredients in a pot. So the time came for my mother to pass the slumguck baton. I eagerly approached this new responsibility with an unquestioning reverence for the recipe as originally shown. I would make it a number of times on my own over the years, never straying from those instructions. But boredom did set in. After all, I am and always have been a person who craves variety. While I will happily throw myself into a new endeavor, it doesn't take long for my patience to wane. I need to spice things up, lest my interest wither to dust and flit away into the ether. I suppose this is where I tell you about the incident. The incident occurred one evening in my late teens. It's hard to remember exactly how old I was, only that it was during a time where I oozed angst. An era defined by such an excessive amount of defiant eye-rolling, it's not difficult to understand why I have very little recollection of it. Most of my memories are of the inside of my skull. Anyway, Mom told me to make slumguck for dinner, and on that particular evening, I was not feeling it. Defiant, I rolled my eyes. See? That's just how things were then. I don't want to make slumguck. I muttered to myself, I don't even fucking like slumguck, more like slum yuck. Haha, <laughs> got him. But authority loomed. I dare not defy it so brazenly. I relented. Fine, I'll make the slumguck, but I'm gonna make it my way. Brimming with teenage hubris, I decided that I wanted to experiment. I wanted to be creative. I wanted to be seen. I cooked the shit out of that beef, poking at it occasionally with my spatula until it became that cool gray color that lets you know, yeah, I'm done. I boiled that pasta, dumped it in, dumped in the soup, listened to it all come together as I stirred. And then that's where things took a turn. My mind wandered to dad's spaghetti sauce. How could I take something mundane and transform it into something more. I opened up the cabinet where we kept our spices and stuff, the spices and stuff cabinet. My hands reached out for some of the things I had seen my dad use in other dishes, the Lawry's seasoned salt, the garlic powder, the bottle filled with some orange liquid. Yeah, give it that little kick, really zhuzh things up. I started making it my own. Not once did I stop to taste a single thing. I was running on pure intuition. That real chef shit. I was in the zone. A few dashes, pinches, and shakes later, my masterpiece was complete. A heaping mass of noodles and beef swimming in a beige sauce. I filled two bowls, brought them to my sister and my mom in the living room, and then went upstairs to my room. I wasn't even hungry. I was sated by satisfaction. And it was time to play Morrowind. Not even two minutes later, I heard my sister calling me from the stairway. Mom wants to ask you something, she said. The resulting eye roll reverberated throughout the house. I went downstairs to face my mother in the living room, where she sat with a nearly full bowl of the dinner I had made. Did you do something to this? She asked. 
Uh-oh. Um, yeah, I said. I, like, wanted to try something different. Make it better. What did you put in it? I don't know, like, some of the stuff from the spice cabinet? The, I think the seasoned salt and garlic powder and some of the sauce from that one bottle? She paused for a length of time that can only be described as, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. She said, you know your sister and I don't like spicy food. Sorry, I said, my gaze averted. If I concentrated hard enough, I could probably ignite the wood floors with my stare and escape this moment via immolation. It's so spicy, my sister said. My mom said, I just don't understand why you would mess with it like this. I didn't have an answer. She sighed. Well, I'll just have to try and stomach it. The conversation was over. I sulked out of the room. It's remarkable how quickly hubris dissolves into shame. Later that night, Mom told me she was able to finish it, that it wasn't that bad. Eventually, we would laugh about it, though not quite hard enough to shake the feeling deep within me that I had inexorably fucked up, a feeling that followed me years later, lingering in the background, a relentless voice chiding me, You idiot. What were you thinking? Give up. Maybe I wasn't meant to be taken seriously. In late 2004, I moved to Chicago for college, where I initially shared a school-sponsored studio apartment with a culinary arts major who cooked a comically large amount of rice I, on the other hand, cooked very little. After all, the incident was still fresh in my mind. I didn't want to look like a moron in front of my chef roommate, so instead, I deferred ownership of the kitchen to him and resigned myself to a life of indulgence in the San Francisco treat. A year later, for reasons unrelated to my roommate or his cooking, I found myself longing for my own space, eventually settling on a 327-square-foot apartment in the heart of the city. For the low, low price of $967 per month, I had my own bathroom, my own living room, and my own kitchen. Fifteen stories below, the L-track intersected with itself, battering me in my apartment with a cacophony of grinding metal every seven to ten minutes as the trains rolled by. It was a loud apartment. It was a hot apartment but it was mine. I couldn't wait to move in, to feel independent, to feel like an adult. At that time, I was dating a person I would eventually marry. I'll refer to them slash her as G. We had been together for less than a year at that point, having met on MySpace the previous fall. G was a senior in high school who lived in the dorms of their boarding school about an hour north of the city. The bulk of our relationship was therefore confined to nightly phone calls and sprawling AIM conversations. It was a special occasion when we'd get a chance to see each other in person. Me having my own apartment made that prospect even more enticing because now we wouldn't have to worry about my roommate getting in the way of adult hugs. In a masterful display of social engineering, we were able to convince G's parents to let G come over and, quote, help me unpack, unquote, the day after I moved in. This was the first time we'd get to be alone with no fear of interruption for hours. I wanted it to be special. So I thought, what better way to christen my newly acquired IKEA cookware than to make my first adult dinner in my first adult apartment for my boo? It'd be so romantic. Smoldering coals stoked deep within, an excitement for cooking I hadn't felt in years. Suddenly, I was eager to have G over, not just so we could 
unpack, but so I can make a special dinner for both of us, a chance to share my love and appreciation, to feel mature. I decided to make tacos. I got taco shells from the grocery store, and ground beef from the grocery store, and shredded cheese from the grocery store. Everything you could possibly want in a taco. It was going to be perfect. When G finally arrived to my apartment, we did, in fact, spend the day mostly unpacking. I got my computer set up so I could put on one of the many playlists I had made for us. We cranked that shit until I got to experience my new neighbor banging on the wall for the first time. We set up my shitty metal bookshelf. We put away all of my clothes. And yeah, we made out a little. The day melted away. By the time the sun crept in through the window, tummies grumbled. This was my moment. I went to the kitchen, got out my new nonstick skillet and my new spatula. I started to brown the beef, poking at it, apprehensively, at which point I was interrupted by G's laughter. They asked, What are you doing? Why are you poking the beef like that? It hadn't dawned on me that poking the beef was weird. But G found it not only weird, but also hilarious. It should be noted that G grew up in an Italian household on the south side of Chicago. And when I say Italian, I mean Italian, like first generation off the boat Italian grandparents on her dad's side, like ties to Capone Italian on her mom's. These are people who had a proud, deeply intertwined culture, a heritage for which a mutt like me had absolutely zero frame of reference. One of our family meals, I might remind you, was slumguck. G's family meals consisted of homemade pasta, homemade wine, homemade wine chicken, homemade pizza, homemade soppressata, homemade fish salad. These were people who did not tolerate store-bought pasta sauce. These were people who called pasta sauce gravy, and you better fucking believe that that gravy was made from scratch. There was a rich history of intergenerational food sharing at every family gathering. These were people who knew how to cook. And people who knew how to cook did not poke beef. G's phone rang, her mother, for the third or fourth time that day. G picked it up and immediately said, Ma, you won't believe what Keenan's doing. Me cooking was hilarious enough to lead the conversation. There was plenty of laughter about my ineptitude. That was the day I learned what the word chach meant. It's remarkable how quickly excitement dissolves into shame. Anyway, I don't recall how the tacos turned out. I do recall how deflated I felt. G and I were together for 12 years, and me cooking remained, let's say, a challenge. My presence in the kitchen was a source of tension for both of us throughout the entirety of our relationship. As a result, I largely relegated myself to handling the most mundane cooking tasks, reheating frozen pizzas, microwaving lean cuisines, boiling water for pasta. If it was pre-cooked and required little more than concentrated warmth, I could handle it. Turns out I'm really fucking good at opening and closing oven doors. It was when I longed for variety, when I wanted to challenge myself, that things fell apart. I've been forever plagued by a proclivity for perfectionism, and a notable byproduct of that has historically been an unwillingness to ask for help when I need it. Surely I should be able to handle anything on my own. I should be able to control everything. I was very smart. After all, I wasn't allowed to bring home anything lower than a B on my report card. The last thing I needed was assistance, like some chotch. 
I was convinced that I needed to be able to do it all, to be self-sufficient, to figure it out. And when things didn't go as planned, I would spiral. For over three decades, I was unaware of the concept of mise en place. So when I did attempt to make something more complex than Velveeta shells and cheese, my philosophical approach to the kitchen was what I like to call winging it. Winging it is very simple. All you have to do is start. Start reading the ingredient list on the recipe. Start reading step one. Complete the tasks in the step as you read them. Don't look ahead. Don't look at the bigger picture. You'll get to step two eventually. Just follow the instructions. Preheat the skillet. Chop the onions. Measure your spices. Unpackage the chorizo. Start browning the chorizo in the skillet. Don't forget to prep the bouillon. Where the fuck is the rice? Peel the sweet potatoes. Measure out the salsa. Realize the chorizo has been sizzling for a long time. Oh fuck, it's starting to burn. Look at the next step in the recipe. Shit, you forgot to finish chopping the sweet potatoes. Get overwhelmed. Feel the world start to close in around you. Give in to frustration. Get irritated at the dog coming into the kitchen or the cat trying to jump on the counter or your partner coming in to check how things were going. Any interruption is an intrusion and the only thing you can possibly focus on is just trying to hold it all together and failing. G's response to me in these situations was to kick me out of the kitchen. I'll just do it, she'd say, her eye roll rattling me to my core. This happened enough times that I felt broken. Clearly, I was incapable of handling a simple task like cooking, and the friction of me struggling wasn't something my partner could tolerate. The miasma of frustration, obfuscated reason, or calm, I would retreat with my shame, sitting with it until it settled into another stratum. What was so wrong with me that I couldn't get this right? Back then, I didn't realize how much shame informed how I operated in the world. I didn't realize how much of my propensity for rage was tied to the shame I felt. It is easier to see now that I'm in my late 30s, though admittedly, it is difficult to look past the incalculable amount of time I've lost while stewing in shame. Shame was a cancer that began spreading early on in my childhood, and when left untreated, festered. A malignancy multiplying until it controlled so much of my mind that I felt like I could never be whole. I wasn't capable of feeling Emotion, I was emotion. My actions dictated by emotion. The more I tried to rein it in, the less control I felt. I'd lash out, which resulted in more shame, which resulted in relinquishing more control. I couldn't see anything clearly. It felt like everything was a potential trigger that ultimately resulted in shame, rage, loneliness, Irritation, sadness, disappointment, annoyance, numbness, depression, frustration, anxiety, panic, attraction. Shame. Every time I got sad. Every time I lost my patience. Every time I hurt my partner. Every time I saw my father in me. Every time I saw myself as a child, afraid of who I had become. Shame. It consumed me. I didn't know who I was without it. I didn't know 
who I was. In December of 2017, I moved into my own apartment on the north side of Chicago. For the low, low price of $1,225 per month, I had my own bathroom, my own living room, my own bedroom, my own in-unit washer and dryer, and my own kitchen. One of the first things I bought for myself after I moved in was a cast iron skillet. I had decided that I wanted to learn how to make a really good steak. I watched YouTube videos and read a couple recipes online. I bought a ribeye. I seasoned it with salt and pepper and let it sit out to come up to room temp. I preheated the skillet and seared the ribeye until it got a nice crust on both sides. Tossed in a couple knobs of butter, a couple cloves of garlic, some rosemary, basted the steak in the butter, then let it rest on the cutting board for 10 minutes. I think I roasted some asparagus for the side. I sent a picture of the finished product to my partner, Katie, the person I would eventually marry. She lived in another part of the city and wasn't coming over that night. This one was just for me. I don't recall how the steak turned out. I do recall how proud I felt. Shortly thereafter, I decided to try signing up for one of those subscription boxes you used to hear ads for a lot on podcasts, one of the ones where you pick the recipe and actually have to prep and cook the ingredients they deliver to you. I liked that it gave me the opportunity to try cooking out of my comfort zone, exploring a wide array of flavor profiles while also teaching me some of the basics of how to be a better chef. The recipes were clear, simple, and made cooking feel more approachable than anything else I had tried at that point. They helped me build a level of competence and confidence in cooking that I've taken with me even though I've long abandoned their services. As I cooked more, I worried less. I lost control less. I didn't completely alleviate the inherent stress of having to manage the preparation of multiple components. To this day, I do still feel that anxiety sitting with me when I try a new recipe. But it rarely, if ever, overwhelms me like it used to. I've learned to cohabitate. The summer after I moved into my own place, I asked my parents to come over so I could make them dinner to celebrate both of their birthdays. I wanted to be a little adventurous, create my own menu, make something for them that was a little unusual, a little special, something they probably wouldn't have chosen for themselves. Okay, yeah, I was excited and I wanted to show off a little. So I seared duck breast and made a sour cherry pan sauce, a puree of potatoes and celery root, roasted carrots, and no, I didn't touch the hot sauce. My dad said, wow, Keen, this is one of the best meals I've ever had. Don't get too excited. He says that a lot. He loves food. My mom said she was impressed. I was happy with how it turned out. My previous failures in the kitchen don't haunt me anymore. I've spent the last six years learning and growing and becoming more comfortable when I cook. I realize now that cooking is improvisation. It doesn't always go as planned, isn't always as straightforward as you might anticipate, but it's rarely impossible to recover if you just go with the flow. Finally learning what mise en place is has helped a lot. Finally learning that tasting along the way is essential. Finally learning to enjoy the entirety of the process. Learning to let go and trust that I can figure it out, that what I did before doesn't dictate who I am moving forward. In the summer of 2022, Katie and I bought a house in southern Indiana. 
And in the past year and a half of living here, we've done the best cooking of our lives. I'm scrolling through my favorite iOS app, Mila, to look back at all the new recipes that I've made in that time alone. Some of them I've loved, others I've been okay to abandon, all of which help me appreciate who I've become. J. Kenji Lopez Alt's Beef Stew, Slow Roasted Gochujang Chicken, Gochujang Sesame Noodles, honestly basically anything with Gochujang fucking rules, Pepperoncini Chicken, Kimchi and Squash Mac and Cheese, the best potatoes au gratin I've ever had, Brussels sprouts and sausage stir-fry, citrus braised pork with crispy shallots, a surprisingly tasty broccoli alfredo chickpea skillet, the best bolognese I've ever had, Cajun chicken with a peach slaw, asparagus frittata, roast cod with chorizo crisp, scallops and chorizo and tomato sauce, chorizo also fucking rules, Japanese golden curry with pork katsu, sesame crusted feta with broccolini, Slow-cooked lamb in a white wine sauce with potatoes paired with brothy chickpeas and Calabrian chilies. And my personal favorite, the one I make more often than any other, fusilli alla vodka. And you better believe I make that sauce from scratch. Last night, I tried to cook something new. Seared skirt steak with scallion tetza, roasted Brussels sprouts as a side. The skirt steak was a little tough and unevenly cooked. The tetza a little too bitter and herby for my liking. I did add a squeeze of lime juice, though, which helped brighten it up a bit. Improv! The Brussels sprouts were good. Katie and I agreed it wasn't our favorite recipe. Not my best effort. I think about how even preparing that meal a decade ago probably would have devastated me, let alone not having it turn out the way I wanted. Now, it's something to learn from, to try differently next time. No big deal. Something that's easier to see now that I'm in my late 30s is that I spent so much of my life trying to appease other people, to fit into their expectations, to be the person I thought they wanted me to be. And the more I tried to be the right person for them, the less me there was. I suffocated myself in an effort to take up as little space as possible. The pressure constricted me for decades. It got to a point where I felt like the only choice I had was to run, reset, give myself space to grow, figure out who I really am. I learned to love cooking by learning to see me.